This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Twenty years ago, on June 10, 2003, I interviewed Margaret Atwood about her latest book, Oryx and Crake. This was the fifth of eight interviews conducted between 1989 and 2013. While a half-hour version did air on KPFA in 2003 and likely a year later on the paperback release, an edited version of the complete 47-minute recording was likely not made. And that's because much of the discussion seemed to be a couple of old acquaintances just chatting about the recent U.S. invasion of Iraq how Canadians view the U.S., the possibility of fascism in this country, and sometimes just kind of goofing around. But it's that part of this interview which stands out 20 years later. At the end of the interview, we discuss possible film adaptations of her novels. The film of Alias Grace with Kate Blanchett did not get made. Instead, Netflix aired a six-part adaptation of the book in 2017. The Robber Bride did become a made-for-television film starring Mary Louise Parker in 2007. Since 2003, of course, other adaptations have come about. The Handmaid's Tale became a successful TV series, extending and continuing the story, and Margaret Atwood's own sequel, The Testaments, is now in development as a TV series. Mad Adam, the third volume in the Oryx and Crake trilogy, is also in development as a miniseries. My guest is Margaret Atwood, whose latest novel is Oryx and Crake. Last year or two years ago, um, not sure which, uh, Negotiating with the Dead, a writer on writing, which consisted of uh, lectures turned into essays about the process of writing. And a very fine book it is, too. Well, thank you. When you're working on that and comparing it to, say, working on a novel, which gives you more of a charge, do you think? Writing nonfiction prose has always been my hardest thing. The reason it's my hardest thing is that people are expecting you to tell the truth. <laughs> so I was, these were actually six lectures given in, at the University of Cambridge in England. They were supposed to A, appeal to a general audience, B, appeal to a student audience, and C, appeal to an academic audience. So you can see what a challenge that may have been. And I have the same problem with that sort of stuff that I always had with homework. That is, you, you say ahead of time, sure, I'll do it, like maybe two years ahead of time. Then time moves on, and you still haven't done it. And time moves on even more, and you still haven't done it. And then you start panicking. And I found myself in Madrid living in a flat where every time I plugged my computer in, sparks came out of the wall. <laughs> also, the books that I fondly expected to be in the English-language bookstore weren't there. So this was a bit of a, a challenge, and uh, I wrote some of them there, and then I had to go back and check all the references. But a book like that involves the dining room table by which I mean that you lay out all of the books that you're quoting from 
and then you have to make sure you get the page numbers right and all that kind of thing, which is really hard. But also there has to be a plot, as in any book, and a train of thought. And at the same time, you can't talk down to the audience, but you can't be so obscure that the general public, who's going to be there, won't know what you're talking about. So it's a book about what is this writing. It's not even about how I write or um, other people's writing as such. It's about what is writing as a form? How does it differ from other art forms? What is at the core of it? If you had to tell a Martian what this stuff was, how would you describe it? So it goes on from there. And coming up with a particular thesis for that must have been very hard as well. I mean, well, I can't say I'm going to do something. You know, I couldn't tell them I was going to do it until I had come up with that. I'm not a complete maniac. <laughs> it's like you're, again, it's like your homework. You have to have an idea of the essay that you're going to write before you do the procrastination and have the panic attacks. So you knew where you were going with it. At I that knew time. where I was going. I had my my six chapter headings. Margaret Atwood, let's move on to your uh, to your novel Oryx and Crake. Your last novel, The Blind Assassin, contained some fantasy slash science fiction elements. The story within the story within the story. This one is pure fantasy, science fiction, satiric. As I was thinking about it, because you're kind of a, uh, I, I sometimes get the feeling that deep down inside you're sort of this closet science fiction writer. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm out of the closet. Now you're out of the closet, yeah. <laughs> well, you were with Handmaid's Tale, which may be why I think it worked where most, quote, mainstream writers who try science fiction say, I can do better, like Doris Lessing fall on their face. But since you've got that inside you, you don't. Well, of course, I grew up in that generation a lot. I grew up in the comic book generation, which included Flash Gordon and various other people who flew around in transparent airplanes like Wonder Woman and and uh, people like that. I never really bought Superman. I wasn't a fan of his, but Plastic Man, whom few remember now, uh, had fallen into a vat of something bad, which had made him very rubbery. I was keen on him as a child. But I also read a lot of H.G. Wells, John Wyndham, George Orwell, Brave New World, that whole area as an adolescent. And as a graduate student, I studied earlier examples of it. So I know the pantheon, as it were, and I know the challenges, and I know um, the parts in those books that are less convincing than other parts. This is not science fiction pure. It's not pure science fiction. It's not on other planets. It's not talking squid. It's not War of the Worlds. It's not Star Trek. It is uh, speculative fiction, which means to me planet Earth, people as they are, uh, without eight arms yet, and uh, <laughs> things that we're already doing, have done, or could do, and are thinking about doing. So a path we're already on, then you, you go further down that path and say, what if we keep walking down this street? It reminded me, the particularly the segments talking about the genetic engineering did remind me a little bit of uh, Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick Blade Runner is a wonderful film. 
Um, I think the film is actually better than the book, in my view. Uh, but yes, and science f fiction writers have been into mutants. Usually they did these kinds of things through through mutants. You know, there had been a mutation. Well, now we can do the mutations ourselves, and we're doing them. Uh, so we no longer have to rely on atomic radiation making cockroaches very, very large. So yes, indeed, that's true. But there, there's a whole... Do you know Ridley Walker, for instance? Russell Hoban, an excellent book, sure. in, in my view. So there are a lot of these what-if-we, and that that's the area we're in, but the what-if-we is pretty close to what we're actually doing now. I've got all the clippings in my big brown ominous research box in the cellar to which I add daily. There's, um, with the publicity material, there's an actual page of headlines. I, I assume that came from you. Yeah, it came from me, and I've got more of them now. <laughs> <laughs> Including stuff about Dolly the Sheep and Yeah, Dolly and the Sheep bought it, but um, I know a friend, of, a friend of mine was in a strange castle in Scotland where they put writers in the winter for their sins, and uh, she looked out the window and she saw all of these sheep that looked very much alike. In fact, they looked identical, identical coloring, and she said to one of the help. Uh, would those be would those be clone chief? She said, oh yes, they're cloning them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Margaret Atwood, this book takes place in a future. Uh, we, we watch the history of uh, this particular character, Jimmy, as he evolves into snowman. The period, the, the flashbacks take us from a time shortly in our future up to when he changes his name to Snowman. Yeah, it's right? about 30 by then. So in, in essence, the Snowman part is a framing device, as is the old lady in Blind Assassin. Well, partly, but, but that is the character. I prefer to say that the book starts the way the Iliad starts, uh, a book to which it bears no other relation, but it starts in the middle, so you start at the point, in effect, where Achilles is sulking in his tent. So Jimmy's sulking in his tree, <laughs> wearing a bedsheet. And there seem to be few other what you might call human beings around. In fact, there are no other what you might call human beings around, although there are some human-like human beings better looking and with alterations. Then you go back in time to find out how he got into this tree, and then you go forward in time to see what he does next because, in effect, he's running out of food. The book is titled Oryx and Crake. And as I was reading the book, I was trying to get a sense of the title. Oryx is a woman um, who comes into the book specifically toward the end, though she pops up here and there, who uh, was a I guess uh, she's, it looked like it was in Thailand. She was a girl from Thailand, though you don't specifically somewhere say there. there. Yeah. Somewhere there. And wound up in America. Craig is Jimmy's best friend, and he is a, uh, a geneticist, I would guess you'd call him. Does a lot of splicing and gets has a kind of God complex, as we discover as the book goes on. Why Oryx and Craig when it's really more... Jimmy's story, and why Oryx in particular? What was the point of putting her name in the title? Uh, well, it's, like, it's a title like Dombey and Son, in that you don't know 
what anything about what the book is going to be about until you find out who Dombey is and whose son is. <laughs> it could be, you know, Dombey and son could be, son could be a dog for all you know. So all it tells you is that there are two beings in the book. One of them is called Oryx and the other is called Craig. So it's a giving nothing away title. I called it that because these are the two people that dominate Jimmy's life, and they're the two people that he thinks about throughout the book, and they have determined the choices that he has made in large part. Now, by the time he's up in his tree, both of them are no longer, um, as they say on the West Coast, on this earthly plane, although <laughs> he's continues to, to talk to them as if they are because he doesn't have anybody else to talk to. So that's what it is. Oryx in particular, he has fallen in love with her over the internet as an image, and she has obsessed him all his life until he actually encounters either her or somebody he thinks is her. Margaret Atwood, why at this particular time did you decide to write a satire on genetic engineering? Um, you don't decide to write the books that you write. At the least I don't. You can decide not to write them. They, they come along and you can make a conscious decision not to write them. Or you can go ahead with what has been presented to you. And I get quite a few books coming along that I don't do for one reason or another. Usually the ones that I do do are the ones that I can't avoid. And usually those are the ones that at first sight appear to be the loopiest, the craziest, the most impossible, <laughs> the ones you cannot describe to your publisher in advance because they would say, what? <laughs> You're going to what? <laughs> so I never actually show anybody anything until it's done because I can't describe what I'm doing in any way that would make sense, particularly to a publisher. <laughs> Let's talk about the flashback, the story, bringing up to Jimmy slash Snowman in the present tense of the book. Uh, you posit that America, I would guess, because not specific where, but we assume it's somewhere in America, has kind of degenerated. East coast, the sun rises in the, in the east. We assume that the world has kind of been divided into corporate gated communities and what you call plebe lands, which is everywhere yeah. else. What else is new? And that's, <laughs> <laughs> you think we're there already. <laughs> we're well on our way. Uh, and um, I think that's going to in intensify for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, terrorism. Number two, secret stealing, um, you know, industrial espionage. And number three, the abandonment of the idea of safe public space. You know, the idea that things can actually be so that you're safe walking along the street. Uh, the stock and trade of, of intellectual property is, of course, what's inside people's heads. So our future compounds have surrounded themselves with lots and lots of security, and it's hard to get in and, um, you know, blow up your competitors or indeed just people you don't like. But it's also hard to get out because castles work two ways. Number one, they keep people out, but number two, they keep people in. 
So there are these separations. These separations already exist to a certain extent. Your primary, well, you make up the names of, uh, of various companies, which are clearly nobody would name something I knew you, or at least oh, if they yes, did, they would. <laughs> you think so? I think they'd spell it A-N-U-Y-U, actually. Oh, uh, they might to begin with, until they found out that somebody else already had. The thing, with the, the thing about corporation names is you have to have something that doesn't already exist. So we ran the original set of names a couple of times through the find out if it exists system, and some of them already did. Really? So we had to change them and change their spellings. Ah. Ah, there was, for instance, a public, uh, there's a public affairs internet program in this book called dirtysockpuppets.com. It was originally sockpuppets.com, but that already (laughs) existed. (laughs) You also um, have posited, and um, obviously this is where, you know, the satire comes in. Uh, you know, I'm, it's hard to, to think seriously about something when you're laughing. But you posit various kinds of splices, pigoons. The pigoons are well on the way. You think some of this stuff is satire. Actually, it's not. <laughs> it's things we're already doing. In fact, I think it was, okay, Time, Newsweek, or... Um, one of the big three, they've got an article in this week, which I've just clipped out to put in my brown box. The the pigs are back on track. The transgenic knockout pigs, they're, they're working on uh, developing bits of them that will transplant into you and me without being rejected. So you may think the pigoons, as in pig balloon, are a satire, but People are working hard on this concept. And the chicken nubs? The chicky knobs. Well, chicky knobs would be quite a good idea. It actually came to me through one of those urban legends, the one you may have heard, that what you eat in certain franchises uh, come from chickens that have four legs. Uh, that happens not to be true, but, but it could be done now, even more than ever. And when I was in England just a couple of weeks ago with this book, at the same time I was there, a huge, awful story broke about what they had been injecting into chickens. They've got uh, protein from cows and, and pigs, and they've been grinding it up and injecting it into chicken breasts because it caused the chickens to be more absorbent of water. So then they weigh more and you can sell them for more. And uh, with the chicken knob, you won't have to do this. It's sort of like a chicken vegetable. It doesn't have a head. Uh, it doesn't have any feet. It doesn't have a brain. And it grows multiple parts, either breasts or legs and thighs, according to what you want. And then you can just snip them off. And this would certainly get around animal rights protests because they have no neural system that would allow them to feel pain. They're not suffering. Then there are the Woolvogs, which I thought was silly until I thought about it and realized that these are basically animals bred to kill. Think pit bull. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> they have a high pit bull component. They're, they're trained to kill without giving the signals that dogs usually will give you before they attack, dogs and wolves both. And this is one of the characteristics of the pit bull. Uh, you can't tell. It doesn't have the usual ears back snarling 
stance that attacking dogs have. Then you have the rat. You can't turn them off, you see. You, you could put them in moats, and uh, an electronic system can be, can be frazzed by uh, doing weird things to the electrical wires or with some other devices, but these you can't turn off and you can't get around them. You can't make friends with them the way you can with other dogs. And then there are the rack hunks who are almost like tribbles, I guess. Uh, rack hunks, I think, would be a good idea and they could be done. They're a blend of skunk and raccoon with the good characteristics of both. That is, cute like skunks, don't smell bad, and don't grow up to tear your house apart the way raccoons do. So each form has to be judged on its own merits. Was there a somewhere back there island of Dr. Moreau? Dr. Moreau uh, takes animals and operates on them to make them more like human beings, and he, he causes them intense pain. Uh, the procedures in, in the world of Oryx and Crake are, in fact, painless because they're, they're gene splicing. So insofar as there are, are hybrids, yes, but otherwise not. And the idea of hybrid animals goes way back to Greek mythology anyway. We've, we've always dreamed up these kinds of things. Some of the ones in the book we have already. We've got the luminous green rabbit already. We've made that. And we've made the goat spider. It is even now turning out silk for um, bulletproof vests in Montreal. So we can do these things. It's just a question of which ones we will do and um, whether we should do them. We also now have a light-up fish, which has been developed in Taiwan and is apparently selling like hotcakes. What's in the Wall Street Journal? You know, I just, I don't invent all this stuff. I, I, I clip things out of newspapers. The scariest part for me when I read this is, um, is that if you were to splice the the political situation of The Handmaid's Tale onto the scientific situation of Oryx and Crake, you've got a pretty scary world. And I keep thinking, watching the Bush administration in action, that this sort of material coupled with fundamentalism... Well, fundamentalism would have a problem with this sort of world because if you believe that God created all creatures, etc., uh, it, it then becomes the province of God to do that, not your province. They usually skip over the part in, in the book of Genesis that comes at the time of Noah's flood in which the covenant is made not just with Noah but with, what, with all living creatures of the earth. Uh, they usually forget that bit. But um, nonetheless, if you believe that God created all creatures and found them good, you would have a bit of a problem with creating yet other creatures. You would have a problem with people taking the God role upon themselves. So I'm not sure the two things could exist comfortably side by side. Is that a good thing, do you think? I don't know. You know I don't know. <laughs> I think the world of The Handmaid's Tale is somewhat limited ge geopolitically. That is, it would not occur in the same way in all countries at the same time, whereas the world of Oryx and Crape is, is based on global problems. And uh, in its background are, for instance, the fact that we're due to peak at between 9 and 10 billion people by the year 2050, 
One, two, we're running out of stuff. We have gone through 90% of the ocean fish stocks in the past 50 years. Uh, that leaves 10 for uh, remaining exploitation. And uh, we're facing really that moment in time in which there will be a test tube full of amoebas and no more amoeba food. So those two things, plus the fact that we just opened a great big toy box and people will be trying to fool with that toy box to solve the first two problems. Margaret Atwood, you state in an interview that the book is not anti-science because science is, in a sense, neutral. Science is a tool. It's not, you know, you could say art, you know, anti-art. Well, some art is terrific, other art is terrible. Or books. Some books are wonderful. Other books have been used for nefarious, bad propaganda hate purposes. So you can't, you can't say science is good or bad. You can say some science is very good and helpful, and other science is charlatanism, and other science is potentially destructive. Well, no matter how funny a book like Oryx and Crake is, and it's a very funny book, it, it made me depressed, and I kept thinking, is there any way around? <laughs> you shouldn't sort of be thing. depressed. What you should say is, no matter how awful my own life is at the moment, it's much worse than the book, and therefore <laughs> you, should, you should feel very cheerful when you finish this book, and you should also feel like Scrooge after the visit of the ghost of Christmas yet to come when he says, Spirit, may these things be altered, and he doesn't actually get an answer. But he wakes up in the morning, and it hasn't happened yet. So you can wake up in the morning after reading this book and say, first of all, no matter how awful my life is, it's worse than the book. And two, it hasn't happened yet. No, we haven't gone there yet. We still have time to think. We still have time to solve things. And I happen to believe with E.O. Wilson that we are a very smart species. We can do it if we have the political will and if we don't give in to our age-old a bundle of fear and greed, which has propelled us through history so far. <laughs> <laughs> they have solved sexual jealousy in this book. This is good, uh, because people are no longer intermittently monogamous. They're seasonal, so they come into season just like baboons, and there are clear color signs. Parts of you turn blue, so there's no more no means yes. There's no more guessing. There's no more fooling around. And uh, they will never write the collected works of Shakespeare or any other novels. Well, actually, you don't know that because they're already changing by the end of the book. Oh, uh, we never are supposed to talk about the end, the of, the book. end of the book. <laughs> well, that's why, why God made little green snips. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why? That's why. Actually, it's on my computer now. During the writing the events of September 11th happened, and uh, you mentioned in an interview that you pretty much had to stop writing. Yeah, I stopped. Uh, well, everybody else stopped everything. I mean, we all stopped. We looked at the TV. And the anthrax scare came around at the it same did. time. It yeah, did, yeah, and it's looking more and more like an inside job. Duh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, uh, you know, we're talking with the Bush administration here. Not a word out of their mouths has been honest for since the day they came in. I can easily begin to believe the worst. You can begin to believe the worst. What would the worst be? 
the worst to me at this point in terms of this would be that that the Bush administration contracted with uh, Osama bin Laden to bring down the towers. I think that's somewhat. That's far fetched. Y- yes, <laughs> I'm afraid so. No, no, no. I think it's far fetched. The worst in that real regard would be that that there is nothing these people aren't capable of. Um. Even to that, though, that that's a stretch for then, but maybe not a stretch for the future. Well, you know, they are limited by the, so far, they are limited by the Constitution. They are limited by the way the United States government is put together. And they are limited by you, the citizenry, and the kinds of congressmen you write letters to and and elect. So there are checks and balances. We're not yet in Stalin's Russia. Uh, where he could essentially do any crazy old thing he wanted to. It now appears, incidentally, that he was quite wacko at the end and may have been bumped off by his own folks because he wanted to kill yet another 10 million people and drop atomic bombs on the United States. (laughs) So all of these things. And, you know, it's so true that when a leader has too much power and is also isolated and surrounded by nothing but yes-men. That's when these awful things happen. It happened to the Shah of Iran. When nobody can, can speak truth to power, you know, when nobody can say, look, you know, this is, you're, you're, you don't know what people are thinking. You're not in touch with reality. That's when the megalomania really sets in. Don't know whether you know John Keegan's book, Masks of Command. He's my favorite military historian as such. I didn't say political commentator, I said military historian. And he analyzes four leaders, Alexander the Great, um, Duke of Wellington, his favorite, Ulysses S. Grant, and Hitler. And he says Hitler was actually a very bad military commander because he isolated himself. He didn't listen, he didn't understand what was going on, and uh, he was completely obsessed with his own ideas and sacrificed... uh, certainly a Stalingrad, sacrificed his army to his own megalomania. That's when these things get out of control. And we still keep having to go back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the social contract because that was a lot of the thinking that went into the way the U.S. government was put together in the 18th century. And he said, for heaven's sake, (laughs) don't combine religion and government for heaven's sake, don't do that. For heaven's sake, you have to have religious toleration. And democracy is the hardest form of government to maintain. It's very slippery. It keeps sliding in the direction of oligarchy and autocracy because um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to have a democracy. It does take eternal vigilance, and it does take citizens watching out for people who are devoted to power grabs. But I'm I'm not without hope. That sounds for, like you're not. For you guys. <laughs> well, I, I mean, sitting up in Canada, sitting Look, up in every Canada. every time you know. Washington sneezes, Canada gets a cold. <laughs> the Mexicans say Washington sneezes, Mexico gets the flu, but everything you do has an effect on us. It isn't the great divide, you know, it's it's all interconnected. How does Canada, for the people you've known, view what's going on in the U.S.? 
Canada, like the United States, has many different constituent parties in it and many different points of view. So it depends which Canadian you ask, just as it would depend here. And one funny thing about Canadians is that they often have this view of the United States as a big homogeneous block, you know, where everybody is the same. And that, that's just wrong. Uh, the United States has many, many mixed it's a mixture of many opinions and many different political positions. It's not homogeneous all the way through. Neither is Canada, but in general, uh, Canada was not convinced by the by the uh, WMD proof. Our Prime Minister Jean Chrétien said, "What we need is to prove, and that will be the proof." <laughs> And it never showed up, or at least <laughs> so as of not. this taping, so far it has not. not. So far not. We keep an open mind. <laughs> um, you know, something was there sometime. But uh, I think that when so many different reasons are given for doing something and and none of them are completely watertight, there's some other reason that is not being stated. And I would refer you to an article in the Atlantic Monthly a couple of months ago called The Fall of the House of Saud. I think the real reasons for the feeling of urgency about doing this Iraqi thing are probably to be found there. In Saudi Arabia? Well, the fact that they had their hand on the oil tap and a trillion dollars in deposit in the United States, they could have pulled the plug on you at any time. And they had so much leverage that it was they who were determining which Saudi Arabians needed visas to come to this country and which did not. So the balance of power has just been shifted somewhat. But you couldn't say that if you were the administration. You certainly couldn't have said that uh, in advance because then they might have done it. It came out of the mouth of um, Mr. Wolfowitz recently in the, in the Vanity Fair article in which he said, of course, there's this other big reason which nobody's been mentioning, and that's Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> that would ascribe, in some sense, uh, less than malevolence to the Bush administration. Well, you see, nobody thinks they're evil. You know, politicians, not even Hitler thought he was evil. He thought he was good. I don't know what Stalin thought of himself. It's a mystery to me. They don't come in thinking, I am a bad person, I'm going to do evil and make everybody's life hell. That's not what they come in thinking. They usually come in thinking, I am a good person, I've got the answers, and I'm going to make everybody's life better, although they may not like it at first. It will be better for them in the long run. That's what they think. So I don't think they're rubbing their hands and thinking. I mean, there was this comic book called Captain Marvel. Do you remember it? Well, it got sued by Superman, unfortunately. That's right, yeah. It was a little before my time. Yeah, yeah. well, there was this character called the Worm, and he, he lived in a cave underneath the ground, and he had enough dynamite to blow up the earth. See, I don't think that's what politicians <laughs> are actually like. They're not like the worm. They're often self-deluding, but they don't think of themselves as evil monsters. They, think of, they sometimes think of parts of their citizenry as evil monsters who have to be destroyed, and I, I think that's when things get dicey, when people are so convinced of their own goodness that they define everybody else as evil. That's dangerous. Margaret Atwood, what is the role of a writer in this, do you think, if the any? The role of a writer. You I, cannot tell writers what to do. <laughs> it's never worked. You can't say, all right, writers, here's your role. 
Oh, I mean, there was this thing in the 30s when people were supposed to be very proletarian, and, and they've always had trouble with writers. You know, they've just always had trouble because writers follow the spirit. They follow the winds of the spirit as it blows, and some spirits blow in the direction of daffodils and others blow in the direction of spy stories, <laughs> and there's just nothing you can do. All you can do is take what they have written and then look at that. But you can't make them all line up because they will never do it. This is, for you at least, a cautionary tale. I mean, it's clearly that well, a the certain direction... Well, the winds of my spirit have blown in this direction for this book. I was probably ruined in early in life by belonging to the brownies, which told us to be helpful. So when you, when you see people heading towards a big hole in the ground, you can either have fun by watching them fall into it, or else you can say, look out, there's a big hole in the ground, or else you can possibly do both at once. Not too long ago, I spoke with Erica Jong and uh, asked her about the winds of feminism and uh, women's rights, and she said that there's been such a pullback now that she's getting scared. Do you have that same feeling? A pullback. Um, I think things go through generational cycles, and uh, certainly I would say that the model of life, the model of how we should be and live of the present people, the present you can't even say the Bush administration. You really have to say the majority in Congress and political right. things here and there and so forth. They're certainly not, they're not paddling the canoe of feminism. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, but this has been happening for some time. I think what you always have to look at is what happens within the legal system. And if you want the full overview of that, you've got Marilyn French's three-volume history of women in relation to power, which is called From Eve to Dawn. I think you are going to find it quite difficult to take um, women of today and stick them back to where they were in, say, 1830. You're going to find it rather difficult to remove from them all of their property rights, all of their legal rights, and make them wear panty girdles and hoop skirts or whatever else you have in mind. But what you may find is just an unwillingness to advance or further or foster. On the other hand, what can you complain about? You've got Condoleezza Rice. <laughs> <laughs> she's scary, but she's powerful. Well, Hillary just published a book and is wearing a very nice yellow suit, <laughs> signing lots of copies of her book, looking very perky. Women in this country are not without power. They never really have been. It's just a question of what form that power may take. And I mean, when I went to high school, this is going to start, it's going to be like one of those, I was so poor I had a sock for a pet stories. But uh, when I was in first year high school, in our guidance textbook, there were four things you could, there were five things you could be if you were a woman. And they were primary school teacher, secretary, nurse, airline stewardess, which is what they were called then, and home economist. That was it. Those were the jobs that were said to be open to you then. But they were jobs. There wasn't the idea that there was much earlier that you couldn't have a job. So things have changed a lot since then. But have they retrenched, say, from 10 or 15 years ago? 
Well, let us remember what was happening 10 or 15 years ago if we possibly can. I think the big energetic movement of the women's movement was actually in the 70s, by the 80s. I mean, in the 70s, you had the power pantsuit, (laughs) if you'll recall. Uh, By the 80s, we were already into black makeup and dyeing your hair green and things. But we were also very thoroughly into money, so there were lots of articles about the woman executive and how to trash your friends at work if they weren't um, going up the ladder as fast as you were. I mean, it has been through all kinds of combination from all sisters hugged together to crunch others under your stiletto heels. You know, we've had all variations of that. Oh, we also had The Rules. Do you remember that book called The Rules? That was so much fun. It was just exactly what was in the women's magazines in about 1953. So all of these things have been of interest over the years, but I don't think you're going to get them back to 1850 Uh, without a struggle. If you want to read a book, though, that will cause your hair to stand straight up on end, it's called Reading Lolita in in Tehran. And boy, oh boy, that's an eye-opener. But but surely the American people would not go that far. Surely they would not. I would think not, actually. So you do have hope. Certain amount. Certain <laughs> amount. It's it's depressing. It's It's less depressing today because there's no war going on. And when there's no war going on, the Bush administration kind of has to accept what they've done or haven't done? Well, I think the big question is, does it matter if people lied? Do the American people care if they were made monkeys of? Or do we judge wars by their results? And I don't think this war is over yet. People are still being shot and killed. Looks very much as if some kind of resistance movement is being put together. And I did write a piece somewhere back in January or so called Napoleon's Two Biggest Mistakes. And they were going into Spain and underestimating the Spanish religious fervor, which launched a guerrilla war against them, which eventually drove them out, Um, lost Napoleon a lot of men, and going into Russia without a clear reason and never being able to come to grips with the enemy, which just kept receding mirage-like before him. So no clear, you know, where is Saddam Hussein's head on a stick? And no no clear moment where you can say this wonderful change has now taken place. I keep thinking that it may be that the model, and this is the scariest part, the model for uh, Iraq is not even the Shah and Iran or maybe not the killing fields, which I thought it might be, destabilize the government, God knows what you're going to get. But it looks like the model might be what happened when the Soviets marched into Afghanistan, and the result was the Taliban. Ultimately. Yeah, ultimately. Ultimately. Nobody has ever made out very well in Afghanistan. It was Alexander the Great who said Afghanistan is a very easy country to march into and a very hard country to march out of. I went to Afghanistan partly because of my interest in military history. Six weeks before Daoud was assassinated, the event which kicked off our present uh, chain of events, and you could see why it was hard to march out of. It's because of the terrain. And at that time, I said, how many people live in Afghanistan? And they said, between 
11 million and 22 million. I said, <laughs> that's a pretty big between. <laughs> How come you don't know? Well, we can't count them because we're in control of Kabul, but who knows what's going on amongst the tribes in the hills, and they wash back and forth all the time between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So nobody actually knows. And that's why it's always been so difficult. There's no one center. You can get control of Kabul, but then, but then what? The British couldn't stay there long enough to build a railway. You know, they were chased out of there twice. And that awful retreat from Kabul to Jalalabad, they let one man get through to tell the awful tale, but they were all killed. You could see why. It's a switchback. You just roll things down on them and shoot from behind, which is what happened to the Russians. So to that degree, Iraq cannot resemble Afghanistan. It's flat out. <laughs> it's flat. It's flat. <laughs> so it's not going to resemble Afghanistan in that way. And it's not going to resemble, I don't know why I'm going on about this. So it's not going to resemble Vietnam as such because there's, it's not covered with jungle. So far fewer places to hide, but the places to hide are actually the, the fish in the water places you hide in the population itself. And it may be that what we've got is a, is a quagmire different from any other. Well, each quagmire has its own specificity. Margaret Atwood, now you've written Oryx and Crake, and uh, before that you had Negotiating with the Dead, and I believe there was one other small volume in there too. Was before that, directly before that? I had that. a book of poetry. Right. Could it be that? It might be that one, yeah. Now you've written Oryx and Crake. Have you begun thinking about or even writing another novel? Absolutely not. No, I've been on the road since March, and... Um, Every time you go on a book tour, you say to yourself, I'm never, never going to write another book because if I write another book, I might have to go on another book tour. It's not that they're not fun when you get there, but there's a lot of airplanes, and it's hard on your body. When you come up with another book and decide not to do a tour next time, (laughs) (laughs) uh, are we going to move back into contemporary fiction? We never predict what we may do next. Let me change that from the royal we. I never predict (laughs) what I may do next. I think it's bad luck, and also you never know. One other question. The two previous novels, Alias Grace and Blind Assassin, any chance of them becoming films or... Alias Grace is well on the way. Really? Yes. Kate Blanchett read it, decided she really wanted to be Grace teamed up with Working Title, the company that did Elizabeth with her, and I believe that they are now through the second draft stage and almost to the point where they're planning the shoot. So this is going to be very exciting because if anybody can do that character, she can. She's very brilliant and very good at playing ambiguous characters. Blind Assassin was slated to be a TV series in England. They make very good TV series. Then one of the companies involved disappeared down the proverbial drain. Um, However, they're putting that together again now, and Robber Bride will also be such, and the scriptwriter for that is going to be Andrew Davies, who is 
uh, Mr. Series scriptwriter in England. It was he who did that wonderful Pride and Prejudice. And I have indeed met with him, and he seems to be ready to start his script writing in about August. So all of these things are are on the conveyor belt, but you know in movies none of it means anything until it's actually in the theater. And do you plan on doing more lectures on writing? Do I plan on doing... You know, they're really hard. <laughs> they're really <laughs> hard. They're really the hardest thing, and the, the other hard thing about them is if you use quotes from modern authors, you have to get permission I think the person has to have been dead for 70 years or something before you can uh, not do that. So it's a huge filing job. But um, they are fun to do, all of that aside. If I could have somebody else, which I by and large do, but if I could have somebody else <laughs> take care of the logistics, I'd, I like doing them. You've been listening to an interview with Margaret Atwood recorded in the KPFA studios on June 10, 2003, while she was on tour for her novel, Oryx and Crake. This turned out to be the first in a trilogy, followed in 2009 with The Year of the Flood, and in 2013 with Mad Adam. Her most recent novel, a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, titled The Testaments, was a joint winner of the Booker Prize in 2019. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.